my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 480. Now, the NFL draft is over. We have a lot of ah, couple things to recap and talk about. Hope we're doing very, very well. Let's jump into the most interesting part of the draft, in my opinion, which is, I mean, the first round is really good. There's a couple of good players in the second round. Um, I thought Philadelphia had a really good draft all around. But there were six quarterbacks taken in the first five rounds of the NFL draft. Only one of them, Kenny Pickett, is expected to be a starting quarterback anytime soon. But these are a bunch of guys that I am interested in watching during the preseason. I think it's going to be a specifically really fun preseason to watch a bunch of rookie quarterbacks come in and just see where they're at and how they grow and how they develop over the course of the three preseason games. Now, the first quarterback drafted was when the Pittsburgh Steelers drafted Kenny Pickett, number 20 overall, the quarterback out of Pittsburgh. He is expected to be the Pittsburgh Steelers starting quarterback and franchise quarterback relatively soon. Uh, If he doesn't start week one, he will be expected to play fairly early on in his career. You know, if Mitchell Trubisky wins the job immediately, like week six or seven, I think Kenny Pickett by that time is going to be a starting quarterback. Again, if not immediately week one. Now, a couple things. First of all, I really, really admire Kenny Pickett. Like you look at what he did at college and how he fully realized his potential as a quarterback. That's very impressive. He mastered the system in Pittsburgh. And he was outstanding last year. If he can have a similar progression in the NFL to what he did in college, he's going to be a really solid starting quarterback in the NFL. I'm also excited for him because he played college football in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh for the Panthers. He gets to stay in Pittsburgh for his pro career. And just, I mean, literally, he's in basically the same building. It's awesome. That's very special and very cool to find a home in college and then stay there as a professional football player. It doesn't really ever happen, and that's, man, that's exciting. Uh, also, he's going to have a good team around him. They've got a really good defense. They've got an established head coach, Mike Tomlin. They've got a lot of offensive weapons around him. I mean, I just look at Kenny Pickett, and I'm excited for him. He's got a good situation. He's being set up to succeed, and he's in a city that he already knows and has come to love. Now, Kenny Pickett was the only quarterback taken in the first round, and then There was not a single quarterback taken in the second round of the NFL draft. And watching that unfold actually gave me a lot of relief because I felt like, thank God, I'm not crazy. Going into this draft, there's a reason I didn't do film analysis before the draft because I'm like, I've never felt more uncertain about a, a draft class than this one. I felt very uneasy where there are a lot of guys that have potential. I think I said the line, a lot of... B-level talent, but probably no A-plus level quarterback. And there are guys with potential, but they're not going to be ready to play for quite a while. And the NFL clearly agreed with that and felt that way, too. Uh, Plus, there are so many quarterbacks in the NFL right now where it's almost an oversaturation at the position. I mean, every team pretty much already has a plan at starting quarterback and felt that way going into the draft. Maybe Seattle doesn't have a quarterback, but pretty much every other NFL team said, We already got a plan going into week one, so there wasn't a lot of need at the quarterback position. On top of, there was a lot of uncertainty with how good these guys really are. Now, the second quarterback taken in the NFL draft was when the Atlanta Falcons drafted Desmond Ritter 
in the third round. And I really, really love this move because Atlanta, what they didn't do is they did not overdraft a quarterback. They picked three players in the first two rounds that were attempts to solve problems on their roster. Like quarterback is not the biggest problem in Atlanta right now. They've got Marcus Mariota. He's very solid. He's very fine. And drafting Desmond Ritter in the third round is good value because he's in a great spot. He is an awesome leader. He's going to be good in the locker room. And he can sit and learn for a while behind Marcus Mariota. And then eventually someday, if he can develop his accuracy, work on beating man coverage downfield along the sidelines, he's a good decision maker. He's very mature as a human being. And I think in time, he could become Atlanta's starting quarterback. But because he's not going to do that anytime soon, drafting him any earlier than the third round would have been a bad move in my mind. And so I like it. If Desmond Ritter doesn't work out in Atlanta, he only costs him a third round pick. And uh, he's got potential to be more than just a backup. So all around, I like this pick a lot. I feel very similar to that. To, I feel very similarly with that pick as I do to what the Tennessee Titans also did in the third round. The Titans drafted quarterback Malik Willis out of Liberty. And he is probably the most physically gifted quarterback in this draft. He's a huge arm. The dude can run. There's a lot of potential here. Like, he has the highest ceiling of any quarterback in this draft class. And Tennessee's quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, go watch the playoff game last year against Cincinnati. He's disappointing. Like, he has not lived up to the expectation of the contract and the hype around him. I I thought drafting Malik Willis was a smart move because you're drafting a guy who could eventually, two, three years from now, become the Titans' starting franchise quarterback. Now, Malik Willis is nowhere ready to being a franchise quarterback. He's got to work on reading defenses, how to beat a blitz. Um, I, a lot, there's a lot of stuff that he's got to grow as a quarterback doing. But he's got the physical tools, and frankly, he's got some physical tools that the current quarterback in Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill, simply does not have. He can do stuff Ryan Tannehill is never going to be able to do. So that's cool. He can sit, he can learn, and eventually Malik Willis very well could be, quote, the guy in Tennessee. So I like this move as well. A lot of this kind of level talent in this year's NFL draft, where I'm like, hey, in five years from now, he could be a really good quarterback, and in three years could be a franchise quarterback, but this year it's not going to happen. The next guy drafted in the third round was when Carolina drafted quarterback Matt Corral out of Ole Miss. Man, I have no idea what's going to happen here. I really don't. I could see this going all kinds of different directions. First of all, I don't feel good about Carolina's ability to develop a quarterback. They could not make it work with Sam Darnold, and if they couldn't develop him, I'm not real confident they're going to be able to develop a guy like Matt Corral. I can't tell yet. Is what's happening in Carolina a Sam Darnold problem, or is it a Carolina Panthers problem? Is a problem the quarterback of the organization? We're going to find out based on how, what happens with Matt Corral. But at the same time, I have no confidence that Sam Darnold is the right quarterback in Carolina. And Matt Corral is a really mature dude who is great at running RPOs. And I think there is a, in the world of infinite possibilities, there is certainly one alternate reality here. And one of the possibilities here is that Matt Corral comes in midseason and does very well and becomes the starting quarterback in Carolina. Like, that is a feasible option. Remember, Russell Wilson was a third-round pick. Like, it's, it's not like third-round picks never pan out and become a starting quarterback. Russ did it immediately week one 
in Seattle. So it's possible that Matt Corral does work in Carolina. He's got a funky throwing motion. Please do not give me any feedback about that. I don't care. He, yeah, he throws weird. You know what he does, though? He gets the ball out of his hand very, very quickly and very accurately. And it doesn't really matter. Phillip Rivers had a weird throwing motion, too. He threw for over 63,000 yards passing in the NFL. So I don't really care about the throwing motion. I care about his ability to read defenses and be accurate throwing the ball downfield. Um, honestly, I think if Matt Corral doesn't work in Carolina, it's more than likely going to be because Carolina didn't support him well enough and didn't build a good enough team around him. We'll see. Keep your eye, though. Week 8, 9, 10, maybe Matt Corral comes into Carolina, becomes a starting quarterback, and kind of runs away with the job. Because as a human being, I really like this guy. As a leader, as a mature adult, um, and, and certainly he's the kind of guy I would want to play with, a warrior, a guy who's a good leader that his teammates like. And uh, I'm excited to see what plays out in Carolina with Matt Corral. Now, in the fourth round, the New England Patriots drafted quarterback Bailey Zappi. Uh, I, I always want to say Zapp, but it's, it, I, everyone says Zappi, so I'm going to say Zappi. Uh, the quarterback out of Western Kentucky. I'm surprised they drafted a quarterback. I, I thought, like, you know, they've got a young quarterback, Mac Jones. They're fine at the quarterback position. But I think what they wanted was a backup quarterback they can be confident in. And, like, I, I straight up love this dude. Uh, watching Bailey Zapp, Zappi's film, oh my, I've never had so much fun. I mean, the dude absolutely killed it in college. Like, you talk about a quarterback mastering his system. He's accurate. He's a great decision maker. He literally sends the ball to the right spot basically every play at Western Kentucky. Now, he's dominating bad football teams. And his college tape is a bit hard to judge because he doesn't really ever have pressure in his face. He's got a clean pocket almost all the time. He's got receivers wide open. But it's he was destroying defenses. And it's really hard to be critical of a guy who sends the ball to the right spot every time, is mature, can make accurate throws with touchdown field and... I don't know. I mean, this kind of reminds me of when the Patriots drafted Jimmy Garoppolo, where it's the kind of guy that they could trade him away in a couple of years to another quarterback needy team and get some value back for him. And I think it, at minimum, at the bare minimum, the Patriots got a good backup here. And so um, I, I did not see the Patriots drafting a quarterback at all based on their current young quarterback, Mac Jones. But I actually really like the move, and I really like Bailey Zappi. Now, finally... Uh, with the very first pick in the fifth round of the NFL draft, the Washington Commanders drafted quarterback Sam Howell out of North Carolina. I love this pick. I think this is awesome. Uh, going into last fall, before last football season, Sam Howell was viewed as potentially the best quarterback in this year's NFL draft. Now, the year came and went, and his teammates around him weren't very good. I think that really hurt him. But he is talented. He throws a really great deep ball. And here is why I love, love, love this move. Washington had to really carefully thread the needle here. They didn't want to draft a quarterback early on and make their current new quarterback, Carson Wentz, feel threatened. I think Carson's a bit sensitive. I think he really needs to feel the support of the organization around him. They draft a quarterback in the second or third round, he'd go, really? I thought I was a guy. I think, he, I think that would bother him. But Washington had to be responsible and... Draft a quarterback they can develop in case there's a scenario where Commander Carson doesn't work out in Washington. 
I thought they nailed it. They got a guy who could be their franchise quarterback eventually, but also they drafted him in the fifth round, so he's not threatening to Carson Wentz. And I think it's a really smart and thoughtful pick for Washington. You can argue that they got a first-round talent at quarterback in the fifth round. That doesn't really happen. I, I was surprised he fell all the way to the fifth round. I think part of it is simply because there's not a lot of quarterback-needy teams in the NFL. And I was surprised a team like Indy didn't make a move and get him. Now, Indy had other needs, but Matt Ryan's getting up there in age. And they, you know, I think for Washington, he's an exciting backup plan. And I really, really like this move, Sam Howell, to Washington in the fifth round. I mean, that's, hey, feels like a really good value pick and a guy that has potential to become your franchise quarterback down the road if Carson doesn't pan out. There were three more quarterbacks drafted uh, this year. All of them were in the seventh round. They're less exciting. They're all expected to be backups. Uh, I'm going to screw up this name. I, I don't, I think I know how to say it. I heard it said like three times and I, I don't remember if I am going to nail it, but the Steelers drafted Chris Aludakun or Aludakun from uh, South Dakota state. He's awesome. I think the best thing about this guy, just a weird tangent is the little I saw he is so good at making throws as he gets hit, which is an NFL trait to have. He's a backup, but I like him. He can move around. Uh, Miami drafted Skylar Thompson, the quarterback out of K-State. And Mr. Irrelevant, with the very last pick in the 2022 NFL draft, the 49ers drafted quarterback Brock Purdy out of Iowa State. There's one more noteworthy quarterback, uh, Nevada's quarterback. Carson Strong signed an undrafted free agent deal with Philadelphia after the draft ended I think the reason why Carson Strong didn't get drafted was despite the fact he had some good film early on in the year, there's a lot of concerns about his knee. No one's really sure how good he's going to be. Um, but he's another, he's a guy I'm very excited to watch in the preseason. Like he had some really good tape and some really bad tape. And when the knee was good, the tape is good. And when the knee was bad, the tape is bad. But keep your eye on Carson Strong in Philadelphia. Um, I wish he'd gone somewhere like Seattle where he had more of a chance to maybe someday get on the field. But um He's a noteworthy guy that did not get drafted, and I'm surprised by that. Now, uh, let me check one thing. I want to make sure Seattle hasn't made a, a, a crazy move yet. Let's find out. Let me Google something. Once it, I'm just going to talk you through it. Um, you ever, your mom ever bake at home? My, my mom never baked stuff. My dad made muffins occasionally. You'll hear why I said that in a moment. Um, <laughs> I got some new information. The draft is now over. The NFL draft has come and gone, and Seattle did not draft a quarterback at all. In the second round, they drafted a stud running back, Kenneth Walker, the third out of Michigan State. Uh, I thought that could have been an opportunity to draft a quarterback, maybe Malik Willis, maybe Desmond Ritter or Matt Corral. Um, then they passed on those guys again in the third round. They drafted an offensive lineman. Currently, Seattle's quarterbacks on their roster are Drew Locke, Geno Smith, and Jacob Eason. And look, it is possible. It's possible that Seattle believes in Drew Locke, and they think Drew Locke is going to be their franchise quarterback, and he's a young guy they're going to build around. Maybe. Maybe that's a possibility. But to me, I saw Seattle overtly ignore the quarterback position during the NFL draft, and it felt kind of weird. I'm like, huh, why'd you do that? To me, it was a big sign. At this point, it would shock me if the Seattle Seahawks did not make a move and go get Baker Mayfield. Either they're going to trade for him or they're going to wait until 
he gets cut because Cleveland has no leverage. Seattle knows they can hang out and wait. Cleveland doesn't want to pay Baker. They don't want him on their roster. And uh, Seattle can just wait it out until Baker gets cut by Cleveland. Or they get an offer that's like a seventh-round pick for Baker. Like, just They're going to wait till the deal is really favorable for them. But everyone else has a quarterback. No one's going to trade a lot for Baker or uh, wants to pay him the money they owe him. So I think Seattle's just going to sit there and wait. And I love it. I, I think it's awesome because the idea of Baker Mayfield playing for Pete Carroll, that really excites me. I love that. That is a lot of passion and enthusiasm in a quarterback-coach combination right there. I, I so hope that Baker ends up in Seattle. That sounds really fun. I mean, I think that'd be awesome. And the groundwork has been laid for that. Seattle, they did nothing in the draft. They overtly ignored the quarterback position. What's the meaning there? What? How, why? It's because I think they're going to end up with Baker Mayfield. And I would be shocked at this point if Seattle doesn't get Baker Mayfield because they appear to have literally no other plan. And I thought they made a clear statement saying, we just, we're not going to make a move for any of these quarterbacks in the draft. So it appears like Baker Mayfield is the move in Seattle. All right. Uh, it's time to give some credit to the Green Bay Packers. After, after the first round of the NFL draft, I called them the passive Packers because they were, you know, teams were making moves left and right. There were eight receivers they got moved on, six drafted, two traded for. And Green Bay, desperately needing a receiver, sat there and did nothing. And I was like, uh, guys, did you forget about aggression? Did you forget about making a move and going and getting what you need? Well, hey, let's give credit where credit is due. I am happy to say that the Green Bay Packers in the second round made an aggressive move. They traded up with Minnesota and with the second pick of the second round, 34th overall, they drafted a receiver, Christian Watson, out of North Dakota State. And I, hey, round of applause from me. I love this pick. That's the move I was waiting for. There we go. Okay. He's a big, fast receiver, six foot four. He's a deep threat. And I have no doubt that he's going to be made even better with Aaron Rodgers throwing him the football. Oh, yeah, by the way, he's going to be on a rookie contract. You can pay the guy next to nothing. It's a great move. Hey, Brian Gutekunst, I make fun of you all the time. That's a hey, great job. And I, in fact, so I respect the move. I think he's a great fit for their system. He's a big, fast, deep threat receiver, going to work well with Aaron. And as I take a step back and the dust settles on the NFL draft, and you look at what the Green Bay Packers did, I like it. In the moment, I was critical, but with new information and, and watching what they did, you look at in the first round, Green Bay, they took linebacker Quay Walker. They took defensive tackle Devontae Wyatt. They got two good defenders out of Georgia. They're going to be good contributors. They solved some problems on defense. Then in the second round, they trade up for Christian Watson at receiver. That's a nice aggressive move, the one I was waiting for. And I, I mean, in the first two rounds, the Packers were solving problem after problem after problem. And I love it. Hey, well done. I have no problem adjusting my opinion as you get new information. And, you know, early in the draft, they did a good job. They made a couple good late picks. They drafted three receivers total in this year's NFL draft. 
And, I, you know, after the first round, it looked bad. They really needed a receiver, but they made the move. They went and got Christian Watson. I think he's a great fit. He's cheap. He's got a good skill set that fits well with Aaron. And um, well done, Green Bay. I shout out to them. They did well. Now, the Minnesota Vikings are hilariously confusing. I don't know what they're doing. Um, they traded with Detroit, and they made it possible for, possible for the Lions to get a really talented receiver, Jamison Williams, out of Alabama. So you helped out Detroit. Then they traded with Green Bay and helped Aaron Rodgers get Christian Watson. It's very interesting to see Minnesota helping out their division rivals. Like, do you realize you got to play these teams twice a year for, like, every year, forever? <laughs> okay, have fun guarding Jamison Williams. Have fun guarding Christian Watson with Aaron Rodgers throwing him the football. And it's either some kind of weird—look, I love the Midwest. People there are very hospitable— but I don't—the only time I've ever seen people in the Midwest talk smack is when they're talking about the, the NFC North, when they're like, yeah, the Packers and the Vikings and the Bears. And either it's some kind of weird Midwestern hospitality that I've never heard of, which I don't think it is, or it's just clear Minnesota is either incompetently run or, more likely, they just don't care about what other people are doing. They're like, we're going to focus on ourselves, do what's best for us, and— um, if the result of that is helping out someone else, that's fine because we're going to worry about us. And I, I just want to point it out that when Jamison Williams is awesome for Detroit and Minnesota has to play them twice a year, the Vikings handed Detroit Jamison Williams. And when Christian Watson is awesome, the Vikings handed Green Bay Christian Watson. So uh, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, and I, I think it's weird. And I think for Vikings fans, it's going to be hard to swallow as the years go on, and they're like, yeah, we really did facilitate this. <laughs> uh, we're so glad. We're so glad they got good receivers. And uh, all righty then. So I thought it was kind of weird. And we'll see what kind of benefit Minnesota can find in the years to come. But I think it's genuinely weird to help out your division rival. Okay, I'm going to take a short break. When I return coming up, we're going to talk about Man in the Arena episode 10, the final episode of man in the arena tom brady's docuseries and then we will talk about formula one it's been a week i missed it i finally watched the f1 race from last weekend and uh, if anyone wants to hear about that you can i'll bury it at the end i promise and uh hey in the fan controlled football league i saw terrell owens caught a touchdown pass from johnny manzel i don't have any more to add but that's very cool like hey you love seeing a guy who's in his old age terrell owens doing what he loves he doesn't need the money He's good. He just loves football and is doing what he loves, and I love to see that. So kind of the heartwarming story of the week was watching Terrell Owens catch a touchdown pass from freaking Johnny Manziel. I never thought I would say that sentence out loud, and uh, that was awesome. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Um, I'm just going to pretend that it hasn't been an entire day and a half since I recorded the first part of this episode. I, it's weird. I'm, I'm moving. I'm trying. I don't know. I've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, I want to talk about something positive. It's been, let me say this first before we get into like the topic and talk about what I'm excited about this time of year, the NFL draft is as a special point of life for so many young men who get to achieve their lifelong dream of getting drafted into the NFL and, making an NFL roster. And I, I want to say that's very cool. And um, some draft picks are bad. Some are not very good. Some are awesome. And some teams, I thought the Jets had a really good draft, for example, right? And I, I just want to remind people that 
you know, these are human beings we're talking about. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I monumentally respect the work it takes to become an NFL football player. And you see a lot of discourse around the NFL draft, and people just come down with a, like a hammer on some of these players. That's a bad pick. I can't believe this team took that guy, blah, blah, blah. And I hear you, right? Not every team does well. But let's remember that the person you're talking about is a human being who worked their butt off for the dream. And if a team overdrafts a player, the player didn't choose that. The player just is controlling what they can control. And it's one thing to criticize a team. It's another thing to criticize a player. And I've, I just, I've, I've taken a step back and watched a lot of people and been like, huh, interesting. Like, and I, I just want to remind everyone how incredibly hard it is to get to the NFL and how few people do that. And when you're talking about players, don't forget that little level of respect for even the worst player in the NFL is way better than most people that have ever set foot on a football field. So let's just kind of frame the conversation that way if we can. Um, I'm all for calling people out to make mistakes, being critical, and holding people accountable. But I think you got to start from a baseline level of respect for players and athletes, and I, that matters to me. Uh, I want to talk about something positive, something I'm really excited about. I am really, really excited about the New Orleans Saints. I love what they've done in the last week because they solved three of their biggest problems as a football team. They drafted a stud receiver, Chris Olave, number 11 overall. They traded up to get him. Hell yeah. I love that. Then they got a much-needed tackle on their offensive line. They drafted Trevor Penning, number 19 overall. And now the New Orleans Saints have signed the Honey Badger, Tyran Matthew, uh, a really, really good safety. They gave him a three-year deal, $33 million. That is $18 million fully guaranteed and, oh, my gosh, I'm excited. Now, it's cool because he's from New Orleans. He played at LSU. So Tyron Matthew gets to go home and play for his hometown team in his home city. He's also really good. He's a really good football player. And in my opinion, the Saints defense just got even better. Now, it took him a while to find a contract, I think partially because he's 29 and People are wondering how long can he play at a high level for? Like it, his career does appear to be declining slightly, and people are like hesitant to give him the massive contract. I think he wanted. I think he wanted something like fifty million dollars, four years, five years. Like he wanted that massive contract. He didn't get it. But look, an, an average of eleven million dollars a year for the Saints to get Tyron Matthew. That's a really good deal for them, and I love seeing him get paid. I really like him as a human and as a football player. And here's what's cool right now about the New Orleans Saints. You can build an argument that the Saints are going to be good. And you cannot do that for every other NFL team. Like, for example, you, it's really, really difficult to build an argument that the, the Seattle Seahawks are going to be good next year. You can throw BS at me, but I'll be like, like it's hard to convince me Seattle's going to be a good football team. But New Orleans? Okay, they've got a really good defense. That got even better by adding Tyran Matthew. They've got a good offensive line. They've got a star running back, Alvin Kamara. Their receiver, Michael Thomas, is going to be coming back and be fully healthy. They've got a really good number two receiver now, Chris Olave. And their quarterback, Jameis Winston, look, does not have a perfect track record, has had a rocky career. But you can't deny Jameis Winston's talent and ability. He's a former number one overall pick, and 
they've got a good team around him. They can run the ball, play good defense, and he's got people to throw to. So if Jameis Winston plays well, they're going to be pretty good in New Orleans. And to me, that's exciting and very, very cool. And I love trying to find a way to frame a team as headed in a good direction. You can't do that with every NFL team, but New Orleans, I don't know that they're going to be good next year. It's hard to tell. they got a new coach. They've got an unproven quarterback, Jameis Winston. But certainly the fact that you can build an argument is exciting to me. And uh, if you're a Saints fan, you got hope that, hey, we, you know, we lost Drew Brees a couple years ago. We lost Sean Payton. But maybe things are not going to completely fall apart. Maybe, in fact, things are going to get a little bit better from where they were last year. And uh, if you're a Saints fan, I'm sure that's awesome. All right, uh, the big news from Monday, Arizona Cardinals receiver DeAndre Hopkins has been suspended for the first six games of the 2022 NFL season. He was suspended for violating the NFL's policy on performance-enhancing drugs. And uh, it's a tough blow to Arizona. They lost, he's arguably the best receiver in the entire NFL, not going to play until week seven or eight, depending on when their bye week is. It's a tough blow for Arizona. I, I think they saw this coming. It's you know reported that they did. They had some morning, and it, it makes the the fact that they traded for Marquise Hollywood Brown from Baltimore during the first round of the NFL draft that makes more sense now. Oh, not only did they want another good weapon, but they're like, look, we're not going to have D Hop for maybe a while early on in the year. And what's another storyline here that's really interesting is DeAndre Hopkins gets suspended. The Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray, is trying to earn an even bigger contract and not having DeAndre Hopkins to throw the football to for the first six games is going to not help that cause. It's going to make it even harder now, I think, for him to earn a new contract. And uh, man, they're in a really tough division. The 49ers are good. The Rams are really good. Arizona, I think, is going to be good, but losing DeAndre Hopkins for six games is... uh, Certainly a setback you wouldn't want to have in a really competitive, ultra-competitive division, the NFC West. By the way, uh, DeAndre Hopkins did put out a statement. He said that he was, quote, surprised when he found out and shocked to find out that he tested positive. He denies that he took performance-enhancing drugs. Um, And he said he plans to get to the bottom of it. I don't think he's going to get it overturned. I think what he's trying to figure out is like, what did I take that, you know, did I take some protein shake or something? Like, I, I don't know. It's him defending his honor a little bit. And I think that statement's going to lead to nothing where he's out six games. That's not going to change. And uh, it's just, again, for the real victim here is Kyler Murray, who's trying to have a huge outstanding year next year to not have your best receiver for the first six games is a big deal. And, uh, uh, we'll see how things play out in Arizona next year, but um, certainly it's never good to lose your best receiver and arguably the best receiver in the NFL for about a third of the year. All right. Um, the final episode of Tom Brady's docuseries, The Man in the Arena, has finally come out. It is, uh, remember, it was delayed. The first nine episodes came out, and then there was a long delay on the 10th and final episode. We now have episode 10. It's called The Wheel. And it tells the story of Tom Brady making the move to Tampa, leaving New England, going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, winning a Super Bowl there in his very first year in Tampa during the COVID year. And uh, first of all, let's acknowledge something. I think this is very important to say. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you hate Tom Brady or love Tom Brady. It's always going to be impressive to me, and I think it's objectively impressive. Whether you hate him or love him, you have to acknowledge the fact that he went to Tampa and in year one found a way to win a Super Bowl. I don't know how you aren't impressed by that. That's just really, really, really cool. And he kind of defied all odds. I remember when he went to Tampa, how negative the narrative was. He fell off a cliff. He's a terrible football player. I did a film analysis, remember, saying, hey, he's really good. He needs good receivers. I will always be very, very proud of that video. That was the mo- one, of the most, one of the most right I've ever been in the history of the career of this show, where I'm like, I believe something. I know I'm right. And I was right. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Um, and... Especially during the early part of that 2020 regular season, Tom Brady's first year in Tampa, nobody believed it was going to work. Even me, like as a person who thought Tom Brady was good, I still thought, hey, he's a good quarterback, but it's not working in Tampa. I remember feeling like things are ugly here. They were like seven and five the bye week, and they were a wild card team that went on to win the Super Bowl. And it's just the point here is that no matter what angle you're coming from, you have to be impressed that Tom Brady found a way to win a Super Bowl in year one in Tampa. Now, I will say the beginning of this episode is really interesting. There's a couple good quotes at the end, but the majority, the meat and potatoes of this final episode of Man in the Arena, the middle section, the, the journey to the regular season, the stories they get on their way to a Super Bowl, it's absolutely boring. It's, it's really, it's, uh, it was an interesting I thought it was the worst episode of the series by far, actually. It's just Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski kind of kind of just talking about a few of the highlighted moments from that season. Hey, remember when we played Drew Brees? Remember when we played Aaron Rodgers? Remember when we beat Patrick Mahomes? I mean, it, hearing them talk about it, it, it felt like they just literally were like, well, what are the three big storylines from this season Give us a couple quotes about it. It felt, the word is obligatory. They're like, look, we got a contract. We got to do episode 10. Clearly something was going on behind the scenes in production where I I would imagine Brady actually wasn't that excited to make this episode. Like, even if we don't want, like, we don't really want to do this, but we have to because we got a contract. That's really how the episode felt for most of it. There wasn't any cool insight into anything that went on behind the scenes during that year. Like, the early episodes were, you know, during the Patriots seasons where he comes out of nowhere from Michigan, wins the first Super Bowl, wins another one. We heard stories about Lawyer Malloy and Drew Bledsoe and, like, stuff I'd never heard of before. I'm like, wow, that's really cool insight. We didn't get that in this episode. And it makes sense when you do the math. You go, well, Tom Brady is still a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He probably isn't that excited to share some of the secrets from that part of his career because it's not over yet. And I wonder like how much of the production of this episode particularly was kind of tortured by the fact that Brady retired and unretired and was thinking about going to Miami and then he stayed and it felt like the end result we got was a highly edited watered down version of everything that Tom Brady has to say about it because I think Tom is still in the middle of it and doesn't really want to share a lot about it. He doesn't want to create a distraction. Tom also did give a quote, and, and maybe this is it too. Like, I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Tom said it's easier to look back 
20 years ago than two years ago because I have a lot of perspective on 20 years ago. I'm still gaining my perspective on the more recent memories. So it might just be that he doesn't have as much to say, literally, but I think a lot of it is he doesn't want to talk about things that are still ongoing and still in flux. And I was, this is an episode I hyped up. I remember when the, the series started, I'm like, I can't wait to hear him talk about leaving New England and going to Tampa. But unfortunately, the result wasn't the thing I was excited for this entire time. Again, though, the beginning and end of this episode were pretty interesting. Particularly the beginning when Tom Brady is talking about his dad and also talking about the process of choosing New England. Brady said, I guess it was really his dad who said this, but Brady also alluded to it that he needed to make a change to be happy. And he said the pain of losing in New England had far surpassed the joy of winning. And winning in New England became a relief rather than something to be excited and celebrate and have joy about. That's kind of sad when, you you know, I get it, though. The pressure built up, Tom Brady, the dynasty. I think that that bled into the enjoyment of the game. And going to Tampa, having a fresh start in the warm weather, in a new city, learning new stuff and new people and building new relationships. I think all of that really, really reinvigorated Tom Brady and helped him remain in love with the game. And he also talked about, you know, simplifying his life, which is interesting to me. Uh, how he cut a lot of stuff out and simplifying it made it easier to find joy. And it was interesting when he said that there are three aspects of being the best he can be. Everyone knows about the physical side of the game and the mental side of the game. But the third thing that is often overlooked, and it's not just in sports, it's in everything, is we often overlook emotional well-being. And he felt like he couldn't be his best self if he wasn't caring for his emotional well-being. And that was interesting, I think helpful for a lot of people out there. We talk about your your mind and your body, but remember your emotions and how you feel about stuff and how I feel about your place in life really, really has an impact on how you're doing. And then Tom Brady talked about his dad, and he described his father as present and unselfish and... Talked about how, you know, Tom Brady felt like his dad invested a lot in him and really uh, helped him a lot get to where he was as a quarterback. Didn't push him, but was encouraging and was there for him when he needed, you know, when he needed rides or needed someone to like catch with or his dad was just his ally along the way. And that's pretty cool to hear. Uh, And then, you know, Tom Brady Sr., his father, you know, Tom Brady Jr. and then Tom Brady Sr., the dad. Tom Brady's dad, Tom Brady Sr., repeated a quote that I love. He said, tough times don't last, but tough people do. One more time. Tough times don't last, tough people do. And uh, that's encouragement that I feel like I needed to hear. I was like, oh, wow, I love that. And that's not the first time Tom Brady Sr. has said that during the series. But right now, in this point in my life, uh, I I love that quote. I'm like, okay, we're going to get through it. Just keep fighting and you're going to be okay. Now, it was not my favorite episode of this series, like literally at all. Although Tom did give an interesting quote at the end that I think gives us a little bit more insight into who Tom is as a person and as a dad. And he gave a quote, first of all, saying that 
he does not believe he's as good a dad as his father was to him. Interesting. And then he followed that quote up by saying, Tom said this. He said, I hope my kids find something they love like I did. But I hope they don't take it as far as me. There are imbalances in my life. And there's a lot of subtle pain in that statement. You ever heard of the quote? My dad has said this quote to me a lot in life. He says, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. You can't do everything. You only have so much time. And that's how you budget your time. And Tom Brady has budgeted most of his life. He spent most of his life in pursuit of becoming the best football player he could possibly be. And I felt a small twinge of regret there. Like, huh. I chose not to invest in other things in my life. I chose this path. I'm committed to it. I'm in too deep now. But it's really the first time I've ever heard Tom Brady say anything negative about his commitment to football. And I'm like, huh, there is way more to that that we're not unpacking. And I was like, hmm, that's very interesting. Especially on the back of Tom Brady retiring and then unretiring, you're like, well, This guy really is wrestling with his success and wrestling with not just football, but everything in his life and everything, you know, his commitments and what he's doing. And um, I find that really, really interesting about Tom Brady. And I did not expect to find that weird gem of a quote during episode 10 of Man in the Arena. It's highly edited. It's basically, you know, what's the word? Um, Yeah. propaganda for Tom Brady. Like this series is edited by him. He's got full creative control. He's not going to say anything negative at all, especially this episode in particular, because he's not going to badmouth Tampa or say anything bad about New England. But um, it, actually this episode really made me hungry for more. Maybe someday when he's fully retired and actually done with football, we'll get some quite, you know, some kind of storytelling medium where Tom Brady can really share not only all the good, but maybe hopefully someday some of the bad of this journey and his way to becoming, I would argue, the greatest quarterback of all time. Okay, one topic left. I want to talk about this. I know I'm late. Deal with it. I'm sorry. Um, I finally watched the most recent Formula One race, the Emilia uh, Romagna Grand Prix at Imola. I am very late. I... I apologize for whatever that's worth. I was out of town when it happened, away from my studio with my father. He, and then, you know, we're literally, I was on a different island. <laughs> and then uh, the NFL draft happened. And I'm like, look, I, I got to cover the draft. That's my bread and butter. I got to cover the NFL first. So finally, a week later, I have now watched the Emilia de Romagna. <laughs> and uh, there are a couple key takeaways from this race. We're learning, first of all, who's who in form of the one. The good teams, the bad teams, where everyone kind of falls in a ranking. And Red Bull had a great weekend, while Ferrari simply did not. So in the race, Lewis Hamilton, oh, Lewis Hamilton, let's get to that in a minute. First of all, Red Bull had a 1-2 finish. Max Verstappen won and got fastest lap. Sergio Perez, their other driver, got second. Then Lando Norris finished off the podium for McLaren in third place. George Russell for Mercedes got fourth. Valtteri Bottas got fifth for Alfa Romeo. Kind of cool to see him. By the way, 
competing with Mercedes, but also beating Lewis Hamilton. In sixth, you had Charles Leclerc uh, with Ferrari. And the other two noteworthy finishers, in my mind, for Haas, you had Kevin Magnussen getting points. Really cool to see Haas. They're, they're way better this year. I love it. And then Lewis Hamilton is all the way back in 13th place. He did not look good at all. At all. And uh, Lewis, Hamilton had, Lewis Hamilton had no pace all race. He couldn't pass Pierre Gasly, his Alpha Tauri. Even when he had DRS, he just could not find a way to get around that car. And it's, it's very weird. I'm not used to seeing... Lewis Hamilton have an embarrassing performance where all year it's just been different for Mercedes and for Lewis Hamilton. And I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. Now, inexplicably, for some reason, I will not understand. We got half of the race without DRS. There was no drag reduction system, which, you know, I remember makes it way easier to overtake during straightaways. It wasn't turned on until lap 35 of 63. The race started a little bit wet. But very clearly, like 15 laps in, you're like, okay, it's dry enough. We've got dry racing lines. Why are we not turning on DRS? And it wasn't until lap 35 of 63 that DRS got enabled by the race directors. They were being cautious. It was wet to start. Then there's looming rain and rain clouds and potential for wet conditions. I get it. But, man, the result was that Red Bull really, really got helped by not having DRS early on because there were a couple times where Charles Leclerc I thought with DRS could have made a move and passed Sergio Perez for second place in the race if he'd had DRS. Now, Ferrari had a bad weekend. Carlos Sainz got hit by Daniel Ricciardo early on during the first lap. He had to retire early after he was stuck in the gravel. And then later in the race, because Charles Leclerc was still in third place behind Sergio Perez, he had a bad pit stop that was about a second too long, plus no DRS the entire race. The result was... Charles Leclerc found himself in third place, which, you know, put him, he was in striking distance of second, trying to make a move and catch up to Sergio Perez and put himself in a position where he could pass him. And being overly aggressive, he hit the curb, spun out, lost control of the car, was lucky actually not to, you know, completely wreck the car. He was able to continue driving, but he went from battling for second place, spun out and fell all the way down to P9. Awful stuff. Going from a podium spot all the way back to, you know, he finished in sixth place, which is not terrible, but certainly a far cry from a podium and really hurt him in the standings, both Ferrari's constructor standings and his driver standings. So this weekend, you know, I guess last weekend, Red Bull and Max Verstappen gained a lot of ground at Imola. And I want to remind everyone, easy to kind of overlook this and forget this fact, uh, it's kind of funny. We're only four races in, but Max has won every single race he has finished this year. We've had four races. He has retired early from two of them, and he's won two of them. So I think when Max is on the track and can finish a race, he's clearly right now the fastest guy in Formula One. And Imola felt like a potential turning point for Red Bull, where they've had some reliability problems early in the year. It's been a little bit skeptical. But right now in the constructor standings after this weekend, after last weekend, Ferrari is in first right now with 124 points. Red Bull is a lot closer than they were in second place with 113 points, just breathing down the neck of Ferrari. Mercedes is in third with 77 points, and then McLaren is in fourth right now with 46 points. They have gotten so much better. 
It's clear after four races that the battle for first is Red Bull versus Ferrari. And then the battle for third, a really interesting, fun one, is McLaren versus Mercedes. You both have Mercedes-powered engines. And I love it. These fun battles have developed. I can't wait. And shout out to McLaren, man. From race one to now, four races in, they have made really big strides and gotten much, much better and a lot faster pace. And uh, this battle, it, it's going to be awesome. Max Verstappen versus Charles Leclerc. Uh, if you look at the driver standings, Max Verstappen is in second place right now with 59 points. Charles Leclerc is leading Formula One with 86 points. But this is like, you know, I, I, it could, it's going to be really easy to close that gap in a race or two if, if one of them does really well, one of them does really bad. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm really excited for this battle between Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen as the year goes on. Now, the shock of the year to me, though, is that Lewis Hamilton, if you look at the driver standings, is all the way back in seventh. And uh, he's been outperformed wholeheartedly by his teammate, George Russell, who's in his first year with Mercedes. And I just got to say, I'm not used to seeing Lewis Hamilton struggle. It feels weird. I'm not used to it. I'm like, why, at what point is Lewis Hamilton going to you know, take a turn and just start dominating again, or at least start being competitive. At least start beating his teammate, George Russell. It's very weird that we're still four races in and haven't really seen the best from Lewis yet. I'm like, I'm I just, I'm going to keep waiting, but I'm just waiting for that moment and it hasn't come yet. Now, uh, this coming weekend, Sunday, May 8th, we get to watch Formula One go to Miami. And uh, I'm really excited. That's my home country. Uh, never been to Miami. I'm going in August. And uh, I don't know. I just think Miami's going to be a really fun, interesting, cool setting for a Formula One race. And I'm really hopeful for a good race this weekend. And uh, guys, I love you. I'm sorry it took so long to get to the race. I, for those who want it, you, you got to hear my thoughts. For those who didn't, you, you skipped it a long time ago. But I love you very much. I appreciate you tuning in. And uh, I'm just, it's going to be, it already has been a really good Formula One season. And as the year goes on, it's just getting better and better. And I, I, I'm really happy with the kind of couple little battles we've found. I mean, uh, Alpine versus Alfa Romeo is shockingly good. The battle for, I guess, fifth place. I mean, there's just a lot of really fun stuff going on in Formula One. And uh, these little pockets of competitive battles are getting really interesting. And I'm, just, I'm so thankful that it's good. And I'm glad there's not one clear guy running away with the lead. To have Max and Charles Leclerc both battling for first is really interesting and to have two teams, you know, Ferrari and Red Bull, both competing hard and both having success I love. So uh, I feel really good about where Formula One is right now, and I'm just really glad that we're kind of being set up for a really great rest of the year. All right, guys, that's all I have. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you very much for tuning in. And, uh, man, hope you're doing well. Seriously, I, uh, a lot of stuff coming up this week. We're going to talk about – I'm not going to say anymore. I, I will see you soon. I love you. I appreciate you. Have a great day. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.